0: So when Jamie gave me Psalm 91 as my subject for this morning, he said, Tree, don't worry, because it's an open goal. So that's great. What he didn't, well, what he underestimated was my lack of sporting prowess. So an open goal, actually, it's an anomaly to me. So I'm going to kick and I'm going to hope the ball lands. And that's about as far as my sporting analogies go. Okay, so I've got 20 minutes to um, unpack Psalm 91. So I'm going to crack on. Um, so, it's an often quoted psalm, Psalm 91, and especially the first verse. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It's a psalm that reminds us to abide in God um, and to find our refuge in him. And in times of darkness, it reminds us to return to God and return to his promises. Okay, so I'm a pastor's daughter. I've learned the power of the letter P. Okay, so no matter what my dad was preaching on, he could always find three P's to hang the sermon on. Okay, so here are my three P's. Right, ready? So we've got promises, perception, and position. Thanks very much. Okay, but here's my question. What if the darkness is, in fact, the shadow of his wings? I'm just going to let that hang there. So Psalm 91, it's one of the orphan psalms, so it's a, they're called one of the orphan psalms, so there isn't a specific reference to who it was written, there's a collection of psalms that weren't written by David and they were collated from other writers. So there's no specific reference to who it was written by, so it could have been David, but there's some suggestion that it was written by Moses. And that's because they were a reference to The perilous present pestilence, fan of the peas as well. Uh, The pestilence that walks in the darkness, the arrows that fly by day, um, and it says, Nor any plague come near your dwelling. So it's all reminiscent of the journeys of the Israelites out of Egypt. So if this is the case, then the psalmist is a man who's truly lived in darkness. But he's had first-hand revelation of the protection and the promises of God. So even in the chaos of Egypt, with the plagues and deaths, battles, wilderness, the psalmist saw God's protection. But it's important to recognise that the plagues still came, that battles were still waged, that death still occurred. So it was still dark. But the promise of God is the shadow of his wings. So there's a promise of shielding, of protection, of peace, of being held up. And though plagues and pestilence may come in our lives, and though darkness surrounds, the promise is that you will find rest in the shadow of his wings. You will find peace, protection. You will be held up. So we're on to the promises. In the verse, in verse one, God's referred to as, it says, Shaddai or El Shaddai. If any, anybody remember Amy Grant, yeah. El Shaddai. Yes, yes. <laughs> a little reference for you there. Yeah, thanks. Um, so, El Shaddai is God Almighty, unconquerable, all sufficient, the mountain. Okay. So, in the chaos of life, the promises of God mean that even though we're in the valley, we can be conscious of the mountain. We can feel empty, but be bolstered by his sufficiency. So, like Mike was saying, he's physically empty, but he knew of God's sufficiency. And the important thing here is that it's not enough to just know the promises. It's not enough to just know that the mountain's there. I'm in the valley and there's the mountain. We have to be conscious of the shadow of the mountain. We have to actively engage in the fact that we are covered by the shadow of his wings. The promises that are given in this psalm are an amazing summary of all of the promises that span through the Bible. So I did a little Google. I'm not going to say that I knew these off by heart, so when you see all of these verses come up. okay. In verse 2, it says, he will give you a place of safety. Mm-hmm. And that appears in Thessalon- 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. In verse 3, he says, he will swerve you away from entrapment. He will shield you in truth, in verse 4. He'll protect you from fear. He'll protect you from your enemies. He will command, give charge to, like a general gives charge to his army, His angels charge over you. He will rescue you. He will answer you. He will be with you in trouble. He will deliver you. He will honor you. He will save you. If we lived in these promises, then we could be hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We could be perplexed, but not in despair. We could be persecuted, but not abandoned we could be struck down but not destroyed. But how often is that the case? Although we don't live in a world of physical pestilence, we do live in a world of cultural and spiritual pestilence. The ground often feels rocky beneath our feet. Our thoughts are regularly invaded by the culture of the world. In an increasingly secular environment, arrows fly by day and our fears increase at night. And there are often things snapping at our heels that we have to kick off. So I'm just going to give you... I wasn't going to, but I am going to give you an example of my personal life. So for my friends who know me, Lib, um, I can go from being really cool as a cucumber to if my children aren't in my sight, I fall apart. And so, for example, if my children aren't in my sight, they're falling in a ditch. Or they're hurt somewhere, I need to get to them. If Paul's laid back from somewhere... Um, he's driven in a ditch so ditches are quite prevalent <laughs> in my thinking, I think a lot about ditches um, and it, it can come from nowhere, so when my anxiety is at its worst the stresses and my, my uh, the physiological symptoms are fear that's, that's what I live in that's, that's. Um, and I've been to many altar calls because I thought I had to be cured of fear of, of, of anxiety I thought that I had to be healed of it because it was an affliction. And what Psalm 91 has taught me is that actually my darkness, my anxiety, is actually the shadow of his wings because it, it has taught me about empathy, trust, confidence. I boast that my reliance is entirely on God. And without anxiety, I wouldn't have that reliance. I, I'm a very self-sufficient person. I'm, I'm okay to do stuff. And the only thing that keeps me reliant is, is that constant returning, remembering the shadow of his wings. But it's taken me some time to get to that. So when trials come, when these things happen, how many of us find it easy to live in the promises? So Spurgeon... Another Pastor Will uh, special. He loves Spurgeon, and so therefore so do I. So Spurgeon says, Every child of God looks towards the inner sanctuary and the mercy seat, yet all do not dwell in the most holy place. They run to it at times. They enjoy occasional approaches, but they do not habitually reside in the mysterious presence. How would it change our perception of trials and tribulations and challenges if we habitually abided in the mysterious presence of God. So from my personal experience, common reactions to darkness or trials are, I shake my fist at the moon. Why me, God? Why me? Um, Or I run in and out of the presence of God asking for help. So I try and fight the fire and then I run back to God and go, do you mind just... Give me a hand. Right. I'm going to go back now. And then, and I run in and out of the presence of God. And maybe you recognize yourself in that. And we serve a gracious God. So there's provision for both. God does help when we cry out. Yeah. You know, God is there when we shake our fists at the moon. He does graciously, calmly discipline and encourage us. But what this creates is a reactionary relationship. And it's, it's transient, it's not trusting. So we react to the circumstance and then we go back to the presence of God and then we come out of the presence of God and we're okay now and then something else happens and we'll react to that and we go back into the presence of God. And when we shake our fist at the moon, it's a transient reliance. We, we trust him when he's doing what we want him to do. So when things are going good and when he answers that or we perceive he's answered our prayer, then we can trust more. Or I'll trust you a bit more. But we're not dwelling in the presence of God. So there's a very clever psychologist, Californian psychologist, called Dr. Robert Resnick, who's come up with this brand new formula, uh, which he details as event plus response equals outcome, or circumstance plus perception equals outcome. So it's the idea that a circumstance will happen and your perception of that thing is what affects the outcome so whether it's a positive outcome or a negative outcome whether it bolsters you or destroys you is based on your perception of that circumstance funnily enough dr resnick this isn't a new formula in john 16:33 it says in the world you will have tribulation circumstance but take heart perception i have overcome the world outcome In James 1, verse 2 to 4, count it joy, perception, when you meet trial's circumstance. Your faith produces steadfastness, outcome. So we change our perception by changing our position. Psalm 91 makes it really clear where we are best placed. It says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High... Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, because he has set his love on me. From the beginning, God desired a dialogical relationship with us. So even after the fall, he created a way for this relationship to occur. In Exodus 25, verse 8-9, he says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. So even then, when God could have said, stay in the wilderness, stay in your tribulation, he said, no, make a place for me. Make a place so I can be there with you in it. In the New Testament, Jesus calls us to abide in him, John 15, verse 4, and it's written again repeatedly by the apostles, Colossians 2, verse 6, 1 John 2, 28, Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. All of them abide in me, you know, I'm the vine; you are the branches. The, it's, it's, it's a constant, it's a dialogical relationship. It's not this transient, jump in, jump out, jump in, jump out. It's a constant two-way dwelling. It isn't enough to just know, be aware of the mountain and the promises. We have to invest ourselves in them. We have to imbibe the promises. We have to immerse ourselves in the promises. To dwell is to take up permanent residence. So what happens when we dwell? Wait, no, I've got another one. So an example of dwelling. In our lives, um, we have relationships in which we dwell. So we're part of families, marriages, we're parents... Each of those relationships define who we are. So how we respond to things is cultural according to our social constructs. So I live away from my parents. I'm now married, I've got children. But Paul can tell you that there are things that are very much O'Leary about me. And there's no way you're going to get rid of those O'Leary things about me. But if I'm away from Paul, I don't stop being Paul's wife. There are things that are very... Team T Morton about me because we've constructed this as a family when my children are at school I'm still their mom all of those things have a permanency in my life they've all been permanent in my life my relationship with my parents and my brothers and sisters my marriage to Paul my relationship with my children has been permanent I haven't dipped in and out of those relationships. If I were to dip in and out of them, I wouldn't be able to reflect on them. There'd be no security in them. So when we think of our relationship with God, how permanent, what, what permanency does it have in our lives? How much do we imbibe his presence? How long do we spend in his presence? How aware are we that he is in everything? We serve an omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipotent God. He is in all things. He knows all things. He can do all things. And if that's the case, then he should be in all things. He should know all things. We should trust him to do all things. When we dwell, our perception changes. We start to trust. And when we trust We see things, I read a quote where it says, we see see things through the eyes of God, and God's eyes are the only window through which we should see things. Our aspect completely changes. So when we're in a trial, all of a sudden it becomes a learning experience. We see the voice behind the voice in our enemies. So when somebody attacks us, suddenly we've got this perception of, we know where it comes from. Timings become eternal timings. So I know that this is for now, but then there will be. Suddenly, God's strategies start to make sense. And we fear less because we truly believe that all things work together for good. An example of alter perceptions changing outcome is um, the walls of Jericho. And... I've just thought Joshua Generation, Michael, right? There you are. (laughs) I just had like a (laughs) Joshua Generation. Um, So God is a God of strategy. So when God gave Joshua the strategy to walk around the walls, okay, he was backed up by science. Joshua had no understanding of physics or waves or the concept of resonance, He didn't know that the very walking on the ground would disturb the foundations of the walls. And by keeping them silent, he raised their frustration so that when they roared, they really roared. And the resonance of that caused cracks in the wall. However, Joshua had been an assistant to Moses, so he had seen the faithfulness of God. When he was sent to spy out the land... Joshua's perception was very different to that of the other pessimistic spies. Joshua had made God his dwelling place. So the strategy was counterintuitive, but Joshua did it anyway. And how many times in our lives is it, if I do it this way, I think it will work? It's exactly what Jamie's been saying. It's the upside-down-ness of God. It's the fact that if you trust me, if you dwell in me, you will know that eventually my strategies will work. So, how do we dwell? So I say, you look back and you lean in. So you look back. You set your love on him. In the last verse it says, because he has set his love on me, you set your love on him by spending time in his presence and recall his faithfulness to you. How many times have you called on God, even when you've been jumping in and out of his presence? You know, even when you've been shaking your fist at the moon, how often has he still been faithful to you? Remember his calling on you. Sometimes we're in times of waiting where we know that God gave us a call, but it just hasn't come to fruition yet. I'm still Moses' assistant, and I've been waiting to be Joshua. I've been waiting to lead. I'm still his assistant, and... I know that he's called me to do these things. Remember the calling, but remember his faithfulness. Remember that he's an eternal God. He's very patient because he's got all the time in the world. It also says, know his name because he has known my name. So study the word. Focus on his character. Get to know who he is, how he works, how he ticks. What is it that he's put in you, that he's made in you, that is reflective of his character? We had a really good time in the um, summit the other week, and we were talking about what things in us do we want God to change? And one of the kids said, I'm a perfectionist. And I don't like the fact that I'm a perfectionist. And I said, But actually, maybe God's made you to be the perfectionist. And another one said, Oh, I'm a bit of a savage, called himself a savage. Um, I react in anger when I don't want to. But I said, maybe God's made you passionate. What is it in you that you're fighting against? For me, God made me anxious. Go figure. But it, it really works. It makes me who I am. It defines me. It, it's, and it doesn't define me negatively. It causes me to rely and trust. Listen to his prompting. So when people attack you, what is God telling you to do? In in our family, we've had lots of attacks and God always calls us to heap kindness all the time and it always works. Confidently say, as I do, he is my refuge. So engage in the dialogue, develop trust in his strategies and act on his prompts. So, what if the darkness is in fact the shadow of his wings. So, in conclusion, that's gone quick. (laughs) There's an invitation. So, for some, you've been running in and out of the presence of God, sometimes shaking your fist, at other times shouting for help, all the while fighting fires that don't ever seem to get out. Maybe it's time for you to rest. Maybe it's time for you to hear the words, you need only be still. For others, it's time to shift your perception. If you've been convinced that God's promises aren't for you, then it's time to look up and see that, in fact, the darkness is the shadow of his wings. That this is a time for waiting, for leaning back, for remembering that he is a God that you can trust. And for all of us, it's a deeper call to a more permanent relationship where promises and not circumstance dictate our outcomes.